Welcome to the Sales Compensation Show, where we share the latest sales performance research, insights, and solutions through in-depth discussions with industry experts. So put that spreadsheet away, grab a beverage, and enjoy the conversation. I'm your host, Justin Lane. It is my pleasure and honor to welcome to the show today, Professor Nick Lee. Nick is a professor at Warwick Business School, the University of Warwick, where he teaches marketing, sales, and research methods to MBA executives and doctoral students. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Nick, for the folks who aren't familiar with your career, can you tell us a little bit about how did you get interested in sales, sales management, and and the research around some of these topics and ideas? Yeah, thanks for asking. I guess I I got interested in sales because I was extremely uninterested in some other things that I was studying. And it so happened that someone gave me a good idea and suggested, well, you know, why don't you pursue this idea rather than this thing that you're so obviously bored of? About a year into into my PhD process and uh I was thinking at the time that that marketing strategy was not really the place I wanted to be. And I'd always been more interested in psychology and and that, that kind of stuff. And, and I'd spent time in sales myself and a really bad door-to-door selling job of visiting restaurants and bars trying to sell uh, artistic works. These, these, these uh, what was it, these uh, chalkboards that, that people did the menus on. I was a I was also an artist in a previous life, and then because I'd studied marketing, they gave me the sales job instead of the uh, the art job. Um, so it was a horrible period of my life, and I went back to the university and uh, ended up in a PhD and studying marketing strategy. and And my supervisor said, you, "You seem really bored of this topic," and he was right. So so we had some conversations, and it turned out sales was really where the interest was. Yeah, and then pretty successful at doing this sort of research around sales, you know, multiple awards uh, from the notes that I have here on best methodology paper from the Academy of Marketing Science, another award from the Joseph Wister Lecture for Social Science from the British Science Association, and so on and so on. What is that internal motivation to keep exploring, to keep researching? What drives you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting you pick those those ones up because you know some those are some of the some of the more impressive sounding ones of which relate to projects that are probably less obviously sales related and i think that relates to my answer which is eclectic what really drives me is this the interest in the world around me i, I suppose i focus on the phenomena of selling but i've also i also kind of grab hold of other interesting things which kind of all in the end, come together. So, for example, if you, the Joseph Lister Award was for a work on neuroscience and marketing that I did, and and that didn't seem very obviously sales related up until the point where I'm working on a project now with with a colleague about how people process different selling messages from salespeople. Uh, we we have some brain scan data of congruence. In other words, whether whether people can be either benevolent seeming you know versus less benevolent and versus uh, competent so there's a either you match up you're warm and competent or you you don't match where you could be warm 
but also seeming incompetent. And we see that these kind of lead to different ways that people process that information. And that that was a direct result of my involvement in that highly non-sales-related area. So yeah, it's it's just this general interest in the world and and that comes down selling it to me is the most interesting part of 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 the business world, I think. And and it, everything we know about people can be applied to that selling context. I think uh, I share a, a curiosity uh, about the world with you. And I'm always, you know, trying to to read things, learn things. And while I was doing that, I ran across one of your papers where you explored the idea of a hot hand in sales. And this was absolutely fascinating to me. I think uh, from from my perspective, this was something that I, I, I heard a lot about as a kid, being a fan of the National Basketball Association here in the States and hearing announcers talk about this idea. At one point in time, I thought that uh, you know contemporary wisdom was that it didn't really exist. It was a, a bias of some sort. But you decided to explore this idea in sales. And again, I'd love to hear kind of the, how did you come upon this particular idea and what did you find? So yeah, I'm glad you you picked that project out because it, it's probably my favorite project that I've ever worked on. Um, it's certainly been the most difficult one um, and the, the longest project. You know, we, we we had the original idea for that project. I still remember uh, a meeting in 2010 or 2011, I think, I, I at the University of Houston at the the Bauer School of Business there, in the um, Stagler Institute of Sales Excellence, which is run by Professor Mike Ahern, who's um, who's a good friend of mine. And I, I went over there on my sabbatical from when I was working in the UK. I went over there uh, just to learn from him. You know, we learned the way he did things and learned the kind of research. And one of the first few days we sat down and had a talk about things we we're interested in. We're both big sports fans. And um, he had a student working on intuition, which is Zach Hall, who's a professor at TCU now, an awesome project on intuition of salespeople. And, and in talking about that, we came up with you know, these psychological phenomena that were interesting. And one of them was the was the hot hand, you know, and, and because all of these psychologists work, they were working in that same kind of area, you know, the, the idea of human biases and pattern recognition. And hot hand interested us because it was exactly as you say, something that had a really well-accepted psychological opinion, which was that it doesn't exist, that it, that it's just a human bias. In other words, we're biased to see patterns in, in performance or, or in any kind of data sequence. Yet those patterns don't really represent anything different from the long-run average. And then you think about that in basketball scoring or whatever. You think, well, someone's got a long-run average percentage of field goals in basketball it looks like they're in the hot hand but but in reality according to psychology they're not really in a hot hand they're just we're just seeing this short run pattern but it's not representative of any change in state so you can't use that information to predict the likelihood of their of their next shot going in any more than you could use their overall long run field goal average right so if they shoot at 50 percent the fact that you think they're in the hot hand doesn't mean they're more likely to shoot the next basket. That's that's the theory. That's then that's what your listeners might have heard of uh, Kahneman and Tversky. And Tversky published a very influential paper in the seventies about this, using free throw data and various other basketball studies to show, in in his mind, that this didn't exist. It was a bias. 
And and the more we talked about it, myself and and Mike, the more we thought that this just can't be true. In reality, that just can't be a, it can't be correct to say that there's no such thing, because when you think about it, that means that your kind of psychological state couldn't really have any influence on your transient performance. And, and we know that people who are more confident probably perform better. That, it certainly feels that way. So so we thought to ourselves, you know, be, both of us are pretty contrarian people. You know, we like we like disproving stuff and and showing the showing that there's a different way of looking at stuff. And and we said let's yeah, you know, let's study that. And it and if to study that, what would we need? We'd need a, a big data set of of people's real calls, right? In sales. And and it so happened that that coincidentally at that time I had access to that. You know, I had a call center company in Europe that was very keen to do research with me, and they'd agreed to give me their records of of their call centers for you know as long as I wanted. And we ended up using three months, uh, which was a, was a kind of campaign for a product. It was outbound calls, and we had all of the calls probably. I forget the exact numbers now, and probably if someone reads the paper, that they might find it totally wrong. But you have many thousands of calls for about about a hundred sales reps over three months, and we had every call, how long it lasted, what was the result, all of this CRM system data. And the thing that's changed between now and the and the seventies is the statistical methods we have access to are way more sophisticated. And and actually, if you reanalyze some of that original data from the early studies, you do find the effect, the hot hand effect, because of the the way that we can do things now. We can remove biases. We can do things in a much more sophisticated way. And it turned out that we could find an effect that that people did seem to change these states from being um, hot and being cold. You know, it's something we found which was which no one has really talked about. And the weird thing is, it turned out that about the same time. Quite a few other teams seem to have this idea that that we could show hot hand existed. Um, no one really looked at it in business, but there were a lot of other sports studies that came out. There's an awesome study on um, yeah basketball, uh, ten pin bowling. We would call it ten pin bowling in the UK. You would just call it bowling, I guess. And a bunch of other studies that showed how the mathematics of the original studies is is just not right. So that it, it's actually more likely. That the hot hand does exist than doesn't exist. So, if we had got our paper accepted straight away, we would have been the first to show that, and uh, you know maybe we would have got a, a Nobel Prize, but I doubt it. But we we now would claim to be the first to show it in, in a in a business context with a real world job, as long as you don't count poker as a real world job, which is debatable, I guess. Um, so that's the story. I mean, long winded, I suppose. And we created an idea that you could actually. Because we we showed them in the paper, we show the mathematics of, of predicting whether somebody is in a hot hand or or not with with the equations, and you can we showed a way that you could interpret well integrate those equations in a, a management information system, where in a real time sense you could get an indication if you're a manager of a call center, for example, of whether your salespeople were in a hot state or a cold state. And whether they're transitioning as well in real time, um, not that challenging to do that if you're if you're a, I guess a programmer to actually integrate that. And we haven't ever we haven't tested anyone who's integrated it in. But what we did was we simulated the same call sender, but if they had used our our, M, our management information system, they would have increased their sales by about fifteen percent 
over the course of that three-month period, if I remember correctly, the exact numbers. So out of curiosity, so my, my first thought, as you described this, you know, thinking about the idea of incentives and compensation, I go, is there any way, you know, through extrinsic motivation to extend or amplify the hot hand? And I have a I have another question based on this 15% uh, increase, which is pretty significant for a lot of companies. But to the first question, any thoughts around that? Yeah. The biggest thing that we found that I guess changed the state was uh, interruptions. So one of the lucky things we had was that our call center company was split into two buildings. One which was a brand new kind of purpose-built building where, you know, this classic, if you've ever been to a modern call center, you know what it's like. It's kind of open plan. People are uh, in a sort of relatively shared environment. Um, they have, you know, nice social uh, break environments, you know, things, places to talk and all of that stuff. So naturally, people are getting interrupted socially a lot. When they have their breaks, they're interacting with people a lot. The other building was a like a repurposed office building where you had people that were much more singly located. They didn't have these kind of joint break times. They had, you know, they had a little kitchen which they could go to and make coffee and stuff. So, so all right, you know, they didn't have the same amount of social interaction. And we found that the the effects of these sequences were much stronger when you didn't have the idea of uh, social interaction. Now, you might think the original idea that people might be thinking now is, well, that implies that the social call center idea is kind of wrong because people will get broken out of their hot streaks. It's not quite as simple as that because in a, in a typical call center environment, you actually go on cold streaks way more than you go on hot streaks, right? And, and it turns out that this social interruption effect is much more likely to break you out of a cold streak than it is to, to break a hot streak, right? So, so we found this kind of differential effect of social contact. In fact, in, in these, um, these social interruptions seem to break the negative kind of momentum effect. So it can work for both streaks. You can break the cold streak, break the hot streak. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have the same effect on the hot streak, right? Doesn't oh, seem interesting. To have, yeah, now... Now I would I would caveat that a bit because I would say we didn't observe as many hot streaks as cold streaks. So it could be that in a in an environment where hot streaks are the norm rather than cold streaks, you might have we might have more data on the breaking of hot streaks and we might we might find an effect but but certainly we found a strong effect on the negative streak, right? It really and so to the extent that I've I've actually done this presentation uh, to call center managers, and I said, you should man, you should monitor whether your people are failing over and over again, and if they are, you should give them a break. And of course, the, the, I did this maybe six or seven years ago, very naively. And yeah, there's the sniggers around the room, and I'm like, what is what's the funny thing? It's like, well, you know, that would take five minutes for our our people to learn how to game their system by just putting the phone down five times in order that they get a break. I was like, you know, that's a good point. <laughs> so, um, but at the same time, you know, it, it that interruption effect is important. Yeah, it's, it's interesting for me to think about this idea of natural state. And I think in sales, if you look at a lot of the the ratios from like outbound calls, inbound calls, like sales reps, there, I think there's a common cliche almost. They have to get used to the idea of no uh, to get to the yes. They have to be very persistent. 
I think about other systems like the natural state of the economy is growth versus recession or, you know, type of thing. So it'll be interesting to see if there's differences in selling roles or industries or things to where you would, you know, what is that natural state uh, type of thing? Yeah, I totally agree. I think you look at that in, in a couple of different ways. First, the, the obvious answer is 100% we want to look at this effect in different types of selling environments. So we've got a very high frequency environment. Most of the hot hand studies are done in these what I would call high-frequency performance event environments. In other words, you, you're playing basketball, you're shooting a lot. You're doing bowling, you're doing multiple you know, bowls, or <laughs> however you would say that. Jeez, you think I've never played, I had never done, uh, never bowled before. And in, in call center sales, you're also selling a lot. Now, in a lot of other high-value sales contexts, you're not visiting you know, 50 customers per day, like you are, you know, calling 60, 70 to 100 people in a call center. It's interesting to think how that effect could play out in a much more infrequent, but possibly higher value performance environment, like like high value selling. Uh, and also maybe where there's a face-to-face -face element. So of course, again, in a call center environment, you haven't got that face-to-face -face thing that's going on. And it's more, it is an interaction, but it's mediated by the by the phone. So there's a lot of interest in, in that. I don't know, people sometimes ask me to speculate. It's hard to speculate because I'm not, I'm only doing that based on common sense rather than any real indication. But you would assume that the longer be period between the performance events, the less likely it is to get onto streaks. So you might say, I guess in a I, and I'm not, this is an assumption. If you watch a lot of basketball, you might hear the idea of people being on a hot streak talked about quite a bit. But if you're a, if you're a soccer fan, because you're talking about goals being a very infrequent event, they aren't talked about that often. And we, we, we spoke about that as well when yeah. we talked about in the UK, the idea of hot hand is not well understood. Uh, people do talk about streaks, but also that's pretty uncommon. So, and I think a lot of that is because you don't really hear of soccer players going on streaks very often, even though you might hear about it maybe two or three times a year if you follow a particular league. So, I, in fact, I'm thinking about it. There's there's a guy right now playing for Manchester United who scored, I guess, in, in a number of sequential games, six or seven. And, and at no point has anyone said he's on a hot streak. Uh, that yeah. I've seen, which is interesting. Now, so I, I actually watch a lot of football. Yeah. And I think the term that comes to mind is when they say a player has found their form, you know, and whether, and sometimes it's about conditioning, but it's like they found their form, right? That, you know, they've, they've hit this, this peak performance where everything seems to be clicking for them in, in some way, shape, or form. And that's a fundamentally different idea. So that's talking that someone has got back to their long-run expected performance level, uh, okay. which is exactly, in, in my view, that's the implication. That's exactly the opposite of what we're we're talking about with things so like they're above hand. the baseline. Yeah. yeah. So so the idea is not. I, I think you can look at things like hot hand and momentum and whatever, whatever you want to call it, in a, in a couple of different ways. One is a sort of psychological phenomena but also as an information phenomena and which is where which is mathematically the way we looked at it so we looked at it through the lens of entropy which is the idea of what information can you get from data you know and our data being a sequence of calls 
So we can predict your likelihood of success based on a number of factors. You would say as a typical econometrician or a typical forecaster, that's the word I'm looking for, that the best predictor of your next event is your long run success rate. Yeah, so if you if you sell at 15% of your calls over the course of a month, you're not having any other information, I would predict your success rate on your next call is 15%, right? Now, the information theory challenge of hot hand is does knowing your sequence of successes over the last x amount of calls allow me to improve my prediction? That that's really what it means to find evidence that hot hand exists. And, and that's exactly what we did. We, we found that knowing knowing your results for your last a rolling window of nine calls, you know, we tried it with different windows. We found nine was that was the best, allows us to predict your success rate much better than just sort of random or not just knowing your overall success rate. So that that's essentially the evidence that the phenomena is real. And and of course, you can really only do that with pretty sophisticated mathematics, which which in the 70s were not really available to your typical psychologist, but which are now. So you mentioned the idea of a potential 15% greater performance. Yep. It was 18, in fact. I just 18. had a quick check. Yep. How would somebody actualize that 18%? Is it is it feeding a particular set of leads to the people on hot hands, or is it just having the people on cold streaks take that social break? Yeah, uh, that's a great question because I actually think doing some of that stuff, that for example, feeding leads to the right people, which is not something we looked at, that would even increase this by, yeah, interesting, we could speculate on that. So just to take you through what we did, we, we created this idea sort of model in terms of what you would do if you could do this in reality. Say you've got a CRM system that allocates calls, which is the classic way it works now. And then you've got access to the results of those calls. Every you know automated system now has all of that. You have an equation which we provide in the in the paper about how to how to measure the state that somebody's in, whether they're positive, positive momentum hot hand, or negative momentum, which is what you might call cold hand, and and to some extent, the likelihood of whether they're dropping or whether they're gaining in that state, right? So at every call, uh, you, I mean, we wait for a set amount of calls to happen. So, you know, the rolling window has to happen first, and then you get a, you get a number. That number then I guess takes you through a simple decision logic, whether you alloc- allocate them another call or allocate them a break in calls. And that is either whether their state is increasing, hot hand, you keep allocating them calls, uh, or decreasing, either it's dropping out of the hot hand, you give them a break, or, it, or it's entered the cold state. Now, obviously, again, you know, if, you, if you're a call center manager, you're, you're poking holes in that right now. And you would have to do that in a realistic way, because you can't just keep giving people breaks, you know, every every time they keep failing. A, because they gain the system, but B, because there's the amount of failure in, in a call center is so high that people would be taking a lot of breaks. But that is a very simple way of doing it. It's a simple way of implementing an equation which rely. I mean, obviously, the more data we get over time, the more accurate that, that equation gets in predicting whether they're in the state or whether they're out of the state. I don't know if that was that was a useful way to explain it, because I could yeah. probably try it again. Did that work? Yeah, no, I think that makes sense sense to me. My head went someplace where I said, is this an argument for return to office for call centers? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great question because I I answered a similar question when I did uh, another talk on this project sometime last year, and and it was a question from someone in the audience, which was like, you know, how does this apply to remote working? And again, you know, with the caveat that we didn't test this is pre pandemic, we didn't test the idea of remote working. You can get a little bit of insight into what we did because of the way that we tested the social interaction. I would say to some extent, it suggests to me, ignoring any other positive benefits of home working and, and whatever, uh, and also, you know, individual differences, some people might be more effective by themselves, whatever. What we found is that it suggests to me that being in the social environment is in a general sense a better thing just for this particular effect because we found that the social environment it it hurt the cold hand effect you know so it made that effect less strong but it didn't do anything to the hot effect so it didn't it didn't weaken that effect so that effect still existed but people who were on the cold streaks got knocked out of those cold streaks and we also find a number of things we also find is that positive performance comparisons are more powerful than negative ones, which is a little counterintuitive. And this is, a lot of economics has found this as well. When you look over and see someone performing better than you, it has a pretty good effect on bringing you up. It has a stronger effect than if you look over and see someone not performing as well, that dragging you down. It's a not a, I don't know, it's not a synchronous, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a, like a, it's not equal, right? The, the the positive effect of looking at someone who's better than you is better than the negative effects. A symmetry, that's okay. the word I'm looking for. Gosh, come on. It's not a symmetrical effect. And I think, again, people think that, well, if we have this high performer in the office, it just makes everyone feel worse. That's not correct either, right? In fact, positive performance comparisons are important. And, and that relates to another study I'm in the middle of right now that, that actually people who look down at the not look down in, in a psychological sense, but people who look down the hierarchy at people who are performing worse, we have what's called last place aversion. And they want to bring their own performance up so they don't get into last place. So in that sense, these social comparisons are hugely important. So I would say that if you have this remote working environment, trying to replicate all of these social comparisons and social interactions that go on is important. And I think that, that, that it, there is something to be said for social co-location. And, and this is one of the things that, that we find, definitely. Yeah. And I was going to ask that, that that idea of proximity to other hot hands, like does it have some synchronicity or synchronization of, of improving other folks? And, and it them? does. We actually found this. We found in the social, and we couldn't test this, so it's not in the journal paper, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. We found there were dependencies across salespeople in their sequences of hot, the hot sequences and cold sequences. Somehow there were people related to other people within that same call center, in the social call center where everyone was sitting together. The problem is we didn't have a seating plan because we didn't know this was going to be a thing. If we'd had a seating, my hunch is that these are people sitting close to each other yeah. that, that reinforce their hot streaks and mitigate their cold streaks. Yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if social circles do well or bad yeah, and we couldn't time. test it. We, we, I've tried a few times to get other other call centers to replicate what we did, but give us that call data. Who's in the office at this time? Which is, you know, you can do that anyway. But who's sitting where is the key? And we haven't. It hasn't got off the ground yet. But but that's one of the things. I was convinced that there would be an effect of um, 
you know, like university exams as well. So I, I tried to get the university I was working in to give me that data as well. And I, ha- I was convinced you would see this like almost like a topographical pattern playing out across the exam hall. But of course, you know, we've kind of gone to a lot of online stuff there. And that that project is uh, yeah. has fallen by the wayside as well. But I am convinced that there are these effects. The uh, It's interesting you mentioned this idea of last place aversion. And I think anybody who's played sports in the schoolyard as a youth is very familiar with this idea of being the last pick or last place type of thing. In the sales world, there's a very common report that shared, you know, the idea of a stacked ranking report or, you know, showing who's the best performer, whether it's to quota or earnings or revenue and ranking people type of thing. And and I've seen a variety of different academic research, you know, for and against this idea. And I saw one study, I can't think of what country it was out of, but it was at a, they were making carpets or something. And and they kind of said that, uh, you know, they took two cohorts of people, the one they showed them where they were on the ranking and the other people, they didn't tell them where they were on the ranking, but they tried to coach or motivate them to, you know, perform better. And it seemed like the one, you know, had, had a slightly negative effect, like 1%. And the other one had pretty net neutral, you know, no real impact on performance. And and so they were kind of saying, like, there's no point of having the stack ranking report. In my mind, I'm like, no, that, you know, I, I go, I've seen people, you know, want to move up leaderboards. And I've always recommended to, for folks to show a cohort of folks, you know, a few above, a few below. So you have somebody realistically that you can catch and realistically that you're preventing from catching. But when you don't, you know, but if you're in 120th place and you're looking at the number one performer, you're like, I can never topple this person, you know, from the top of Everest. So why try maybe? But I, but I like this idea of last place aversion that uh, gives me hope that maybe people are motivated by by seeing where they stand. Well, they are. I mean, we're, we're right in the middle of this of the analysis of this project now, so so we haven't we haven't written it up, but but I know that that's what the findings say. That I, I think you're right. You know, the rankings and 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 the way we display rankings has an important effect, but but that effect is there are different ways to think about the effect. One is like, are you do you care about influencing performance, or do you care about making people feel good about themselves? Right, and and I think we confuse sometimes. Things that come out of the education world, which which is great, full of you know great research because they have you know captive audiences and and lots of data, but education is isn't the real world of work, right? The fact that we might not necessarily want to display people's hierarchies in a in a classroom setting, because we might be thinking more about the psychology of people and giving them and, and different ways of of motivating people in that sense, doesn't mean that that finding applies to the world of sales forces where yeah we should care about how people feel but but we should also care about how they perform because that we have to balance that out and it doesn't mean you have to make people feel bad so they perform but it does mean that sometimes the negative motivation of not wanting to appear last on that on that thing actually has a strong positive effect on performance of the team as a whole now our our work is you know our sort of working title is that laggards matter because you, all we hear about in sales in the Salesforce world is the top performers, right? And, and people ignore the people down the bottom. But but there's always somebody at the bottom. No matter how great the team is, there's always someone at the bottom of the hierarchy. And nobody wants to be that person. 
And it turns out that that has a very strong positive cumulative effect on the performance of the whole team, including, I think, the person at the bottom. I have to admit I can't immediately recall that. And, And that suggests to me that a positive message, not a negative message, that everybody in a team plays a really important role in driving the performance of that team upwards. I think you're right when you talk about this sort of 120-place hierarchy. It doesn't do much for the person, the people down in the bottom five, to think about the person, at the you know, number one, if you've got 120 people you're comparing yourself against. But it definitely matters to compare within that cohort, you know. I think that is, and how we structure last place is interesting, actually. I haven't thought about that before. You know, is it last place within the cohort? Can we manipulate that effect so we can even get a little bit of last place aversion from that top five? You know, they don't want to be number six. I bet you we would find that, you know, that, you know, I'll have to go back to the team. It makes me think of like a lot of Olympic medalists, you know, the people that got the silver medal or the people that somebody came in fourth, they're at the pinnacle of their sport. And they feel massively depressed of of getting fourth place, you know, being fourth best in the world uh, at their event uh, type of thing. For them, last place. There's a great study about that. Yeah, Yeah, it's a great study about that. That, In fact, that slightly contradicts me, I have to say, that shows that I think bronze medalists are happier than silver medalists. Typically. I think that's correct. I'm just spec- I'm just trying to recall that. The idea is that the, the silver medalist has just missed out on the gold, right? Uh, whereas the bronze medalist is actually not... Uh, actually, maybe it agrees with me. The bronze medalist isn't fourth. Yeah. So, yeah. so maybe the way you could spin that, that it does agree with... I'm not contradicting myself at all. That's kind of a cool... Yeah, you know, I'm just parking that in my brain now to look into that and see whether we can use that finding. But that's a pretty yeah. well-known study. Yeah. You're making me think about, too... I haven't been a huge fan of team-based incentives in the selling world. You know, kind of this idea, if it takes a village to sell it, then let's pay the village. But I've, I've always kind of thought about this idea of a, a free rider effect. Like, is it, everybody feels like they're putting forth the most effort and that somebody else is not working as hard as them in some fashion. And so is it is a team incentive motivating in some way? This idea, maybe if there's not a tremendous amount of differentiated performance within the team, that this idea of last place aversion can help bump up the people at the bottom uh, type of thing. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. You know, team compensation was a big topic when I was starting out. You know, that, that we should we should we should reward people by teams because that in, in that kind of influences more pro social behavior. And also the idea that, well, a lot of high-value products, unpacking whose responsibility for the sale is difficult. And also if you just reward the salesperson, that kind of doesn't recognize all the other people that are involved. I think, again, in some circumstances, that makes a lot of sense. Where, where, as you said, you know, if it does take a village to sell that product, you, you reward the village, not just the person at the end who shakes the hand. At the same time, I think team incentives, where they where there is no need for them, they I don't think they have a positive enough effect, if they even do have a positive effect on on social cohesion or whatever, enough to justify the negative effect. Because one of the things we know about working in sales teams is when people when people are not pulling their own weight, that causes bad feeling. And I think there is fairly, fairly good evidence that that team incentives do increase free riding. 
Um, because of course they do, because they, you know, opportunism is is always there. All right. One more question, and then I have two questions that I like to ask all the guests that come on onto the show. The, the next question, maybe it's a topic. We'll see where it goes. You and, and some colleagues worked on a, a paper around intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. I'm very interested in the idea of extrinsic motivation. Occasionally, I'll come across articles or blogs or posts where people say, hey, extrinsic motivation you know, just flat out doesn't work. Thoughts on intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation? Are we are we in the right ballpark in sales compensation at all, or are we are we crushing people's intrinsic motivation by paying them to to sell? Are we getting it right at all, or are we are we barking up the wrong tree? I think that's an awesome question because it, it cuts to the heart of of the phenomena of incentives in sales compensation, but also in what, what we can learn from research in other fields about what we do in, in the sales incentive, you know, practical field. And it also cuts to the heart of, of what business research can do. And, and I sit there and I think, if if something is being used by every company in the world and it didn't work, the companies find that stuff out pretty quickly, right? If extrinsic motivation, you know, in other words, you know, monetary incentives didn't work to improve performance, yeah, okay, companies get things wrong, but every company doesn't get everything wrong for 50 years, right? Someone would have made a lot of money out of a different idea and then it would have it would end it so we wouldn't be doing it. So the of course extrinsic motivation works. The the question is and then the the you know, you you're kind of probably referring to a fairly famous study again in a sort of educational or a childhood development context where yeah you know, when we give people when people choose to do a, an enjoyable task like drawing or drawing pictures if we start rewarding them for that task with with some kind of extrinsic motivator their enjoyment their intrinsic enjoyment of the task disappears and that effect is fairly robust fairly well established but does it apply to the this context we're talking about salesforce compensation only to a very limited extent and and this is how i always look at because i do a lot of reading in psychology and and i try and read very broadly as as you might find out if you ask me about books i i read and recommend to other people i read very broadly and you know if you do that you have to have this kind of understanding of what it what the context of the findings you're reading about is and is there something about that context that makes that makes applying it to salesforce or or any other business context challenging and this is a great example because if you think about the original the studies were done with kids inherently there's nothing wrong with studying kids it's just really difficult but they're doing something they chose to do right there there was no expectation behind that um that they're just doing something fun, right? Coloring in pictures. You know, I, I have a two and a half year old. He loves that kind of stuff. And yeah, so you've what you've done by giving them an extrinsic reward for doing that, you have changed the assumptions of that completely. You've changed it from one type of task to a different one. That's not directly applicable to what we do in selling. Yes, I'm not saying we don't. People don't enjoy selling, right? That so there's an intrinsic enjoyment in selling. I'm not saying that people, some people didn't go into selling because they enjoyed it. You know, that that's fine. At the same time, 
we didn't go into selling just because we enjoyed it. It's not the same way as saying, I'm, I'm just going to pick up this coloring book and do it. We went into selling because it's a job. So th there is an entirely different expectation of that task. So that task is fundamentally a purposive task. So I'm doing a job. I'm expecting to be to be rewarded for that job extrinsically. So whether the effect of sucking the enjoyment out of the out of the task <laughs> to be dramatic ex would exist in a sales context, I would strongly question. I'm not saying there might be some we there might be things we need to think about about how we motivate people, but I think that it's naive to assume that we can replace extrinsic motivators like um, financial incentives solely with intrinsic motivators like let's make your job more fun because because what you would then be doing is taking away stuff not giving it you'd be saying well i'm not giving you that bonus anymore i'm just giving you like a a cool beanbag and a playstation to play with when you come into the office um that's not going to work right you know I don't question that finding. I question whether it's directly applicable to what we do. And I think that that not just knowledge, but also experience tells us that extrinsic motivators work, but that what we can find out about the intrinsic nature of the job is that some people enjoy it. And you have you do have to be careful about sucking the fun out of the job by making it all about money. And that we do see that, I think most people listening to this can, can can probably remember when that has happened to either someone they know or in a different context. And I've seen it happen in my job where, where you know, part of what we do is write research papers. Yes, we get rewarded for that as part of our job. It's really important, but it's fun. It's it's You get to talk to interesting people about what you did and in podcasts, et cetera. And you, you get all of these kind of intrinsic glory motivations. You go to a conference and people say, you're great. Blah, blah, blah. It does happen sometimes. And then I was at a university that said, well, we're also now all of a sudden we're going to give you some money for doing that because we really want you to do more of it. And all of a sudden, yeah, I saw that 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 did suck a little bit of joy out of that task uh, for some people. You know, not not everybody, but for yeah, I, I saw that effect happening. So yeah, the effect exists in a sales context. I question whether it's anything you need to worry too much about. All right, good here. I hadn't thought about the idea of every company's doing it. Could every you know could every company be wrong? Kind of that as a proof, right? Of something uh, is probably the the right way to think about it or go. Companies are not stupid, right? The survival of the fittest idea. If something's not working, ultimately, everyone, I know it sounds super naive, but we're talking about 60, 70, 80 years of compensation in, in sales forces, yeah. right? If it didn't work, somebody would have found a way that did work and would have made a, bit of, uh, made a lot of money out of that. I'll share an interesting story, then I'll ask the final two questions. But the other day, I saw a statistic, and I can't remember the actual statistic, but I went to go see where they had referenced it from. It took me from one website to another to another, and the quote of a statistic kept changing a little bit. And then I found the paper, and then I uh, actually read the paper, and it was a meta-analysis, and so I was trying to find the original paper that the meta-analysis was referring to. And I, and I finally found something, and it harkened back to the era of scientific management. They were talking about this idea of the plowman share bonus and if you're familiar with it, I, 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 but it's a, a way of, you know, if the whole factory improved the profitability of the factory, then 
whatever that percent improvement that that was how much you know greater percent of a bonus that the workers would receive. And so they'd be on the lookout, right, for productivity increases in, in one fashion or another. But they're applying 1915 you know, uh, technology to improve a manufacturing capability. But what was interesting is whatever the baseline would be set within that year that that bonus was paid at, that was the new baseline for future years. And one of these light bulb moments, you know, goes off where I'm like, oh, this is how 94 you know, I'll say 90% just to be uh, conservative, but it's, I would say 95 if somebody pushed me, of how companies set individual quotas or targets for reps. You achieved this number in sales? Well, you get plus 10 or plus 20% on top of that without thinking about, uh, you know, what's the the potential of the opportunity? Or are they going to get better at their job magically and, and sell more uh, type of thing? But but my whole point around the story was I steal a lot of statistics that people misuse in marketing. And as you start to go down this rabbit hole of where did it come from, you know, there's certainly some liberal usage of, uh, uh, of statistics. Truth lies in statistics. All right. Final two questions. The first one, if there was somebody you could pick in the world of sales, sales management, or in the academic world, who would you take to lunch? I think the answer to that depends on whether they have to be alive or not. I think I would, what I, I would love to have, well, talking about someone who's alive, I would definitely love to spend time with Daniel Kahneman. I think if we're talking about incentives or any kind of behavioral, human behavior, I would love to speak to him or, or maybe Richard Thaler. I, I love the nudge stuff that he did. And, and that really opened out a whole new way of thinking about what we do, both of the, you know, in their own different ways. Uh, they opened out a, a completely different way of thinking about how to study, how to study people and the sort of things we should study. If we if we expand that out to people that are no longer with us, I think it will be Richard Feynman, you know, the the physicist who who worked on the Challenger inquiry as well. And 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 what I love about that and found so inspirational is the way that this was a person who is a, a theoretical physicist who also just by thinking clearly about a situation, a terrible situation, the space shuttle Challenger disaster, came out with, you know, or heavily influenced our theories of management. You know, the idea of group think and, and stuff like that and various different ways we think about how we all kind of convince ourselves of the wrong way to do things. And 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 I think that we probably, as a discipline, you know, academically, I don't think we spend enough time working outside our boundaries. And I wonder often whether we, you know, in our, in our professional lives, spend enough time looking for radical, crazy ways of thinking. And, you know, thinking is thinking. You know, the topic it's applied to is the specialism, but the thought, the tools of thought, you know, the the, the rigor, that that is transferable everywhere. You know, I think I would love to spend some time with with that guy. Okay. Last question. I sit in the library. Uh, for work. This is kind of my day-to-day environment. I love to read. I used to read more. And this weekend, I actually thought about the idea. I hadn't read a book this year in 2023. So I pulled something on the, off the shelf and read it and and took some notes and, and found some you know insights from it that I hadn't, hadn't seen before. I always think as you read books and different points in your life, you get different things from them. But with that being said, if you could recommend any book for somebody to go read, around the topic of sales, sales management incentives, what might that be? I think, again, I, I'm, I'm going to come at it from a, 
what I call a horizontal perspective, not a vertical perspective, you know, looking broadly. So I would say from an, in, I guess I, I would say Thaler's book, Nudge, Thaler and Sunstein, Sunstein's book, Nudge. I mean, a lot of people will have read that already. I still think it's compelling. I think Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, again, a lot of people would have read that. From the psychological perspective of, of working out how to, how to understand human behavior, those books are fantastic. I think in a broader sense, I think if we're looking at incentives, the more comfortable we are with numbers, the better. So uh, the the book that's influenced, probably the book that's influenced me most in the last year or two is a book called The Art of, of Statistics by a Cambridge professor called David Spiegelhalter. It's, it's an absolutely fantastic introduction to the way of thinking about analyzing problems statistically and it's got some amazing examples about how we could use data to to improve the way we think about it and then there's also a book i'm also heavily into the idea of thinking about the whys of things and 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 causality so if we again all we're doing with incentives is trying to cause stuff you know so that and causality is a very very it's a deeply strange idea of understanding one thing that causes another. How do you do that? And there's there's a good book by a guy called Judea Pearl, a computer science professor originally. It's called The Book of Why. Um, it's it's a popular kind of aimed. It's it's aimed at, at your regular person. He has a lot of very academic stuff. And the, I guess the final one I've actually got next to me. I have a pile of books that I haven't read next to me. And and I come out I come up with these strange ones and, and it's this book here, um, it's called Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, the Myth of the Objective, and again it's strangely enough by a computer science professor, uh, and it's a lot about this sort of you know tyranny of objectives and I think again in a world of incentives we we are ultimately setting objectives, and it comes down to this every time I go to a sales kickoff for a company, I'm always smiling about that they. They setting okay. You did this last year. No matter what the environment is like this year, it's always so. We're going to do ten percent more. And I always look at the salespeople, and their faces are like, okay. But it comes down to, well, everyone does it. I'm surprised that if it doesn't work, I would be surprised if we all why we all still did it. So, so that's something I would love to look into. But it's yeah. a, that book's a little bit about that. The idea that, yeah, do we really need to objectivize everything? And in fact, is there an argument that not objectivizing things leads to better outcomes? And, and I'm not 100% convinced, but I think it's a, it's a very cool argument about that. Funny enough, I was thinking about this idea recently with the New Year's, the idea of New Year's resolutions. And again, there's plenty of statistics and different things out there, but you know, I think on average, it seems like about 92% of people don't achieve their New Year's resolutions. And then I think about, uh, you know, sales goals and quotas, the targets that people set. And, you know, people, depending upon the survey and the sampling of what they took, you know, people will say, oh, 50%, 60% of reps, you know, made their quota last year. And they'll, you know, bemoan this fact that why can't we get more people uh, to hit their number. And I'm like, well, relative, you know, from for if that's an annual goal relative to like the individual goal that could be really important to somebody, you know, based upon their health or their relationships or something like that. I go, well, that's a pretty impressive, you know, degree of performance. But uh, 
you know, how do we how do we improve it? Uh, you know, even more. And it's like you know, the idea of is it try to set better goals or think about how to continue to motivate people to hit these these goals? Or and this is kind of what I what I said where I was thinking about the same idea. Or is it the maybe it's better not to have goals? You know, when it comes to that, and you're still measuring people in some way, right? But can you ins- have better performance without this this elusive goal? Because at some point in time, I always feel like it's a binary belief. People either believe they can hit it or they don't. And the minute they don't, I feel like they probably disengage to some level. And maybe, you know, on the far end of it, they start to become toxic in some way by complaining to their colleagues or peers that I'm never going to hit it. Nobody's going to hit it. It's impossible. Management, you know, ridiculous. And does it have this effect of, uh, you know, pulling behavior around them down type of thing? But I don't know. It's something I've been thinking about. 100%. I think that's very true because people... It's people will always come up with stories as to why they didn't hit the goal. And mm-hmm. those stories are rarely, well, I just didn't work hard enough. They're usually blaming someone else. So, yeah, it's it's a very, again, we, we probably haven't studied that enough, this goal-setting behavior that's so classic in Salesforce. We know a, little, a lot about goals in, in other fields, though. So, again, it's one of those things that is so common that I'm surprised and of course, what's the objective of the goal, right? Is it that everyone should hit it, or are you just trying to get a generalized improvement in performance? And are there better ways of getting that? Probably, but uh, it's a balancing act. It's very easy just to go plus 5%. That takes you five seconds in the meeting to decide. But if we were going to do it in a different way, we're expending resources on that. So is it? Is it? where's the trade-off? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting little problem there. Yeah. All right. Well, Nick, I think this brings us to the end of our time together. I very much enjoyed the conversation today. I think the listeners will as well. Thank you so much for coming on the show. That was a pleasure. Thanks very much. I've really enjoyed that. Really, really interesting conversation. The Sales Compensation Show was brought to you by Forma AI, the world's most advanced sales compensation solution. To learn more about how Forma AI makes sales comp more valuable to your business, visit forma.ai. Find us by searching for sales compensation in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. On behalf of the team here at Forma AI, thank you for listening and stay smart out there.